Open your Bibles, please, to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Our text is found in the first verse of the chapter, Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Our text speaks of freedom and of being free, but what do these words mean? Uh, Some Sundays ago we looked at John 8.32, in which Jesus said, Then you will know the truth, and the the truth will set you free. And we focus on the word know. Today I want us to consider the idea of being free, or simply the concept of freedom, in connection with authority, which we've been looking at for the past few Sundays. In the Galatians text, Paul once again brings up the Exodus motif. He talks about freedom and redemption and slavery, freedom from. But more importantly, he points back to the stories he's just told. And I would remind you of what you already know. The chapter divisions are not in the original text. These were added uh, hundreds of years later. And so the connection between verse 1 and, and of chapter 5 and the end of chapter 4 is very strong. Um, we should not imagine that, it's, that he's beginning a new paragraph or beginning a new thought. In the previous passage, he's talked about two women, two sons, and two covenants. And at the end of chapter 4, he says, Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Just something to point out as, as we get started. I find it fascinating that in the entire book of Galatians, even though Paul talks about Sarah a number of times, he never uses her name. He'll talk about Hagar, but he never refers to Sarah as Sarah. Rather, he calls her the free woman. And I think he's trying to make a point in the issue of freedom. She is the mother of the child of promise, who is Isaac, different from the child of the slave woman, who was Hagar. It is in this context that when the time had come, Christ had come to set us free. And I think I must mention uh, the passage from Isaiah that Jesus read from uh, his first Sabbath after being in the wilderness, the time of temptation. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and to recover sight, the recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. While it might seem like too much for us to ask, why did Christ set us free? Why did the Messiah come to set us free? Well, Paul tells us it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. But what does Paul mean by this? One could argue it almost sounds like double talk. He's just repeating himself. I will say this, because we're going to go in a different direction, that what Paul is talking about is something quite different than what we mean today by... when we talk about being free and freedom. We live in a world in which freedom is seen as the desired condition. And so Paul's words sound um, somewhat reassuring and comforting, appropriate, supportive of what we want. In our world, freedom is seen positively and authority is thought of negatively. In reality, what's going on is a conflict between two different kinds of authorities. And we'll Hopefully we'll see this by the end of the sermon. Let's be honest. Freedom is something that people find deeply attractive. Beginning from the time that we were children, growing up under our parents' authority, we may have found it grating from time to time to follow their instructions when we wanted to do something else. 
but we found out that there were consequences for not doing what our parents told us. And so we began to look forward with anticipation to the time when we would be on our own and we could do whatever it was that pleased us. So liberty or freedom came to be seen in the modern age as the absence of external impediments, nothing telling us what to do, nothing being the boss of us, if you wish. It is in the modern age, interestingly enough, that freedom is seen as the state of nature, that when we are born into this world, the natural state of mankind, of humanity, is that of freedom. But that freedom is threatened because you have people around you who also have freedom, who might use their freedom to do something bad to you. So it is during the modern age that philosophers began to write about this, and Thomas Hobbes said that what we need is a state. We need to give the state power so that it can protect us, that we can have freedom from the fear of others, that others might do bad things to us, so we need a very powerful state that will keep us free and free from fear. Well, John Locke and Adam Smith came along later and said, no, the greatest threat to freedom is the government. That, in fact, you need to be free from any type of governmental restraint. In the 20th century, it's Isaiah Berlin who makes the distinction between the two kinds of freedom, negative and positive. That is, freedom from, for example, freedom from fear, and freedom to, to do what we wish. The freedom from, I think, deals with what Hobbes was writing about, freedom from fear of your neighbors. The second is with Locke and his followers. I think it is worth noting, at least for me, that the first is associated with the first wave of modernity, and that's the English, the Great Revolution. You know, freedom from the tyranny of kings. The second has its roots in the French Revolution in the the late 18th, 19th century, in which it's freedom to do as one pleases. And then when you come to the 20th century, you have the third wave with Nietzsche and his heirs. Peter wrote in his first epistle, Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. We might ask Peter and say, Peter, you seem to be seriously confused, because if we are free people, how can we be slaves? I thought we were free. I think what Peter means is that we are free to live as God intended. Paul writes in Romans 6, You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. But as modern people, this language is deeply offensive. Individual freedom is, for many people, the non-negotiable value of the modern world. And I would argue of the postmodern world as well. Freedom is the highest value. In the traditional world, in the pre-modern world, we saw that relationships are what govern or directed a person's life. And relationships were those of obligation. Each person was born into a matrix, if you wish. And so you have parents, you may have siblings, you have grandparents, you have aunts and uncles, you have neighbors, you have fellow citizens, and you have a religious community. So you have obligations. Now, you, you're free, you could choose not to fulfill those obligations, but you couldn't change the obligations, they're still there. In the modern world, freedom is seen as freedom from any kind of obligation. That relationships can no longer put demands on us to tell us how it is that we are supposed to act or behave. 
And yet, for all of that talk, I think most people agree that there are certain limits to freedom. I mean, you just can't do whatever you want. Uh, You can't go around killing people, for example. Um, There are limits to freedom. So who decides what those limits are? Well, Hobbes would say the government, and Locke and others would say absolutely not the government. One author makes the case for external limits, expressing it this way. My right to swing my fist ends where your nose begins. In other words, the reason that I'm swinging my fist is none of your business. That's, that's my interior motive, and no one has the right to say, don't do that. Okay? However, if in fact my fist comes in contact with your nose and, and causes injury, I have in fact abused the limits of my freedom I have gone beyond its proper limits. It is assumed in the modern age that swinging your fist is, in fact, your right. You have the freedom to do that. Um, And that no one can criticize you for doing that. If you want to walk up and down Melrose and swing your fist all day long, people would say you have the right to do that. But then you have the business of what if I hit someone? And so the result is in the modern age, Doubt has replaced faith as the default position. Doubt rather than faith. And the individual is expected to rely on his or her own resources to decide, well, can I, can I not? Is this the right thing? Is this the wrong thing? This is, by the way, from a man named Koizas. I'll mention him later in the sermon who writes this. But I was wondering, why doubt? Why has doubt replaced faith? Faith is belief, trust. Why doubt? Well, in James chapter 1, he talks about doubt and talks about being double-minded. Let me read to you. This is James 1, 5 to 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who generously gives to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. I think what James makes abundantly clear, at least to me, is that doubt is not the same as unbelief. Okay, I think a lot of people make that mistake. You either believe or you don't believe that you're doubting. No, doubt is being in two minds. Doubt is believing and not believing or disbelieving at the same time. We think that James may, in fact, have coined this word, dipsikos, uh, literally two-souled or with a divided soul. It's not like the English being two-faced, which points to some kind of deception. But rather, it, it's almost like Janus, the, the Roman god, where you're facing two different ways at the same time. And it's not simply a matter of in, the intellect. Like Mostly, I think, when people today speak of doubt, they think of You know, I don't know, I'm not sure about certain things, that it's an intellectual matter. For James, um, it's not. Belief means living as though God exists. Unbelief means living as though God does not exist. And doubt is living both ways at the same time. That is, in one moment you may be profoundly aware of God's presence and that this is what God said you should do, and the very next moment you're making decisions on your own as though God has absolutely nothing to do with your existence. It is, 
living as a practical atheist. We believe in God, but we're acting as though he does not exist. And that's the modern position. I think it's a doubt that people, in fact, 80% of Americans say they believe in God. Um, that would be, if you wish, on this camp and the faith uh, part. But the unbelief, I would say that most people live as though God does not exist. Um, and so doubt has become, in the modern period, the default position. And there are a number of reasons for this, but one of the things I think that really pulls us toward this position of making our own decisions and living quite apart from God is technology. It has encouraged, one could argue, a certain hubris, this dangerous illusion of human invincibility that we can do pretty much anything that we want. Along with all of this comes the language of rights. That is, we believe that a person is born free and can, can determine his or her own destiny without being dependent on others. See, if you believe in God and live as though God exists, then there is a sense of dependency, contingency. Yes. But if you live as though God, do, God does not exist, then in fact, you can do pretty much whatever you want and you're not beholden to anyone else. No higher power. And with this comes a sense of entitlement, a sense of false independence, and even impatience. And one would argue that oftentimes, if people are sort of in the doubt mode, if you wish, if God does not come through in an appropriate time, they find themselves moving closer to unbelief rather than being in this position of believing and not believing at the same time. We talk of rights. Uh, Koizos mentions uh, in his book that in 1999, the World Health Organization and the International Agency for the Prevention of Blindness launched something called Vision 2020, the right to sight, a global initiative to eliminate avoidable blindness by 2020. That is, there's so many people in this world who have become blind, who for less than a tube of... Uh, antibiotic ointment could have kept their, their eyesight. And one would say this is a very worthy goal to prevent avoidable blindnesses. But I'm struck by, and Koizos mentions, he's struck by that it is the right to sight. Why not call it the gift of sight? Thereby emphasizing that the truth is that all that we have is a gift. Well, I think the bottom line is authority, because once you begin to talk about gift and you have a giver and then this person's above you and then he or she gets to tell you what to do. And in the modern world, that's simply not acceptable. To understand what is right, we must recover a biblical sense of authority. And to do that, we must return to the creation when God created the world in which he spoke you could put in parenthesis, with authority, and it came to be. He commands, and it happens. He authorizes those who are made in his image. It is, in fact, the very issue of his authority that led to Adam and Eve's rebellion, that Eve rejects God's authority, that somehow he doesn't have the right to be the boss of her that she gets to do what she wants. And the rest of the Old Testament and into the New Testament is an account of God's own people and the rest of humanity 
struggling with God's authority. When the New Testament opens, we have two men, John the Baptizer and Jesus of Nazareth, preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Kingdom, meaning there's a king, meaning there's someone with authority. I mentioned this several weeks ago, that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. But it's not just his teaching that had authority. He commanded the winds and the waves. He calmed storms. He cast out demons. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He had authority. And then, in something that must have been so perplexing to his followers, he was then arrested and ultimately put to death on a cross. But after his resurrection... Jesus told his disciples before his ascension, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. As we've seen the past few Sundays, to understand authority and many other truths, we must begin with creation and acknowledge that all authority resides with the Creator. I think... As God's people, we get that part. Divine authority, I think we get that. The problem is human authority. Who has the authority to tell people or to direct the lives of different people? I've mentioned David Koiza several times. He has a new book out entitled, We Answer to Another, Authority, Office, and the Image of God. And he makes the argument, I think quite correctly, that authority is not something that happened because of sin. Somehow imagine that if Adam and Eve had never sinned, that there would be no human authority. Simply not true. Um, As being made in the image of God, we have, in fact, been commissioned. Again, this is to review something that we saw several weeks ago. Every human being bears the image of God. This is so different from what you find in the ancient world, because there the king was the God. He bore the image of the God. And here we see in the Old Testament that the image of God is found in male and female. That's fairly radical right there. Rich and poor, king and peasant. God has all authority and he has now delegated this authority to humanity, not just to kings. And when did he do this? Again, we've looked at this in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. What we find is this, that all human beings and whatever calling God has put them in, they are made in the image of God and they bear authority. God has given them authority. There is a question though, and there's a difference of opinion as to how this authority is delegated. The Roman Catholic view is that God has given this authority, all authority, to the church. And then everything is subject to the church. The Reformation view holds that there is a relationship between God's authority 
his sovereignty and human authority, and it is understood to be direct. It is not mediated as such. So, in other words, all authority belongs to God. All earthly authorities are subordinate to God's authority. And there is no single, there is no single earthly authority from which other authorities are derived. It is as though you have the state that gives authority to others, or the church that gives authority to others, um, or even the family. It is something that comes directly from the Creator. I must tell you at this point, as I was preparing the sermon and as I was reviewing this morning, a part of me thinks that this all sounds so irrelevant. Um, in fact, I've written in my notes, blah, blah, blah. I mean, because, let's face it, in the modern age, as Koizos put it, the quest to escape authority has been a persistent feature. So to talk about authority is something that we really, oftentimes, could, could not be bothered with. It's just something we don't want to hear about. But this is, in fact, to miss the reality of authority. I'll give you an example. I start teaching in about 10 days. And as the teacher, as the professor, I will have authority over the students. I'll tell them what they need to read. They have certain assignments that they need to fulfill. There are requirements in the class. That is a reflection of my authority. But my authority is limited. I can't tell them what they must eat for lunch. I can't tell them that they need to keep in contact with their parents. I can't tell them what they can and cannot watch on TV. I can't tell them what they can or cannot wear to class. Though I might want to, I don't have that authority. Who has that authority? They do. Now, interestingly enough, in today's world, we would not call it authority. We would call that freedom. And as I said earlier in the sermon, the issue is actually two different kinds of authority. People have said that authority and freedom are against each other, but it's really to miss the point that freedom is, in fact, a form of authority. God has given to those made in his image authority over specific areas of life and reality. And while we, re we recognize the authority that God has given to the various institutions, like the home, and so we have the fifth commandment, that we are to honor our father and our mother, to the government in Romans 13, uh, Paul says that governments are instituted by God. In the workplace in Ephesians 6, Paul talks about how slaves are to obey their masters. The church, and we could go on and on, but none of these authorities are ultimate so we should be able to say with the apostles when they were told by the religious authorities, the Sanhedrin, to stop preaching, we must obey God rather than men. In other words, we have a direct relationship with God. God has given us the authority, the freedom, if you wish. And therefore, you can't, I mean, you can tell us to do something, but we don't have to obey you because you don't have the ultimate authority. We need to remember something, and that is where there is authority, there is freedom. Where authority is lost, freedom is lost. Now, I know that sounds counterintuitive, particularly living when and where we do. But listen to the story from Matthew chapter 8. This is after the Sermon on the Mount, in which a centurion comes to Jesus. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and is in terrible suffering. Jesus said, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, 
but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and this one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. The centurion understood something deeply profound, and that is, to have authority is to be under authority. And to be under authority is to be given the freedom to act. That is, to exercise authority. The centurion clearly understood this. The question is, do we? One writer put it this way, authority is held by a person or persons who lead humans to a fuller exercise of their freedom to accomplish human tasks. Again, that sounds like double talk. Authority is held by a person to lead humans to a fuller exercise of their freedom. Well, if you have authority and you're telling me what to do, how can that be freedom for me? But we live in a culture that is opposed seemingly to all forms of authority, unless it suits our purpose, and we've lost sight of freedom in the process. And the whole point of the sermon is that is one of the things that makes it hard to believe in today's world. There's something in our cultural DNA we do not want someone telling us what to do. Because we imagine that it impinges on our freedom. When in reality, there's authority everywhere. And the question is, will you obey obey your own authority, freedom, or will you obey the authority of God? And that is why I think many people and many Christians, let's face it, the default setting is not faith. The default setting is not trust. It is doubt. Where we trust and we don't believe at the same time. And we find ourselves torn. And we find it incredibly difficult to believe. Our text in Galatians starts out, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. If you look at that, the verse doesn't end there. And we dare not fail to read the rest of the verse. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Apparently there was a possibility of losing that freedom and becoming slaves again, being enslaved. Paul's answer for the Galatians had his answer for them had three parts. And I would argue that even though he is talking about freedom in a different direction than what we're looking at today, it applies to us. It can be helpful to us as well. First of all, he says, stand firm then. I think the Galatians in many ways are where many of us are today. They are torn. They don't know which way to turn. Paul has preached to them the good news of the new age. That in fact Jesus Christ has come and has brought about the beginning of the new creation. And they were rescued from their sin, from their paganism. And God saved them miraculously. He has redeemed them. But then some men from Jerusalem, who obviously knew more about the Old Testament than the Galatians did, because the Galatians were Gentiles, came along and said, that's all very good, but you're lacking something. You're over here, but there's something that you're missing. 
And in the process, the Galatians found themselves torn, if you wish, in the domain of doubt, of believing and not believing. They were experiencing, I would say, a kind of theological vertigo. Dizzy from which way, which way do I turn? Paul, what he said made sense, but what these guys make sense, and in fact, I would argue that these people made a very strong argument. And it made it very difficult for the Galatians. And so Paul tells them, stand firm. And for us as God's people, doubt should not be our default setting, but faith should. The second part of his answer is found in verse number five. If you look at verse five, by faith, but by faith we eagerly await through the spirit the righteousness for which we hope. The Galatians were saved. They were children of God. But in a real sense, they were going to be saved. They were sons of God, but the full experience of sonship was not theirs yet. And when we went through Galatians, we saw this. It's the already, but not yet. The process has begun, but it has not been completed. And they have to wait. I think there are fewer things in life more difficult than waiting. But we are to stand firm and we are to wait. And then lastly, in verse number six, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. In verse five, at the end, we read of hope. The last word in the verse is hope. And now in this verse, in verse six, we read of faith and love. The three ideas belong together. Faith, hope, and love. A Christian has faith in Jesus Christ and loves him and all who belong to him. And that person hopes for the world to come. But it is love in which our faith is manifested. When we went through Galatians, I pointed this out. I'm convinced that the men who came from Jerusalem had no love whatsoever for the Galatians. There was no love for them. Paul deeply loved the Galatians, but these men had none because their life was not marked by faith. They weren't men of faith. A person of faith is a person who is marked by love. And if we find doubt as the domain in which we live, not only do we find it difficult to believe, trust God, but we find our love diminishing at the same time. People reject authority, I think, because they see it as loveless, that it could care less about people. God is the supreme authority. God loves us. And he has given each of us freedom, authority, and we are to express that and it is to be seen in love. But living in today's world, let's face it, we find ourselves torn. Let's make decisions, things that perhaps we don't pray about, we don't even think that God might be interested in this. We're just going our own way as though God does not exist. And then other times we're over here and we think, well, we thank God for what he's done and all these things. And we find ourselves going back and forth. We're tossed to and fro. We're double-minded. We're unstable. Because we live in the modern world. But also because we're sinners. By God's grace, may we take to heart what Paul says and stand firm. 
and wait. And then may our love be demonstrated or expressed in love. And in the process, the difficulties I think that we face in the modern world with regard to belief will be overcome slowly but surely. Let's pray together. Our Father, we just really struggle with someone having authority over us, someone being over us. Part of it is because of when we live. We're not like the centurion who was under authority and yet had people under his authority. He understood very well and Jesus is astonished at, at his faith. We don't have that faith. We really push back against any kind of authority, failing to recognize that, in fact, you have given each of us authority. We just call it something else. We call it freedom. And we see freedom as being in opposition to authority. By your grace, may we think these things through. May your spirit guide us as we meditate. And may we be not only hearers of the word, but doers as well. And by your grace, may we not be people of doubt, but people of faith that is expressed in love. Tomorrow's a big day for different ones in the congregation. For Mike, um, he has this injection. We ask, give the doctors wisdom, guide their hands to use the skill that you've given them. And for James, waiting for a phone call, guide him as well. For each of us, as we walk through the world in the coming week, may we have a sense of your presence. May we not be double-minded, but trust in you. And now as we leave this place, we ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us. We pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen.